You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with Ann Timberlake. Timberlake was the founding executive director of the Conservation Voters of South Carolina, leading the organization for 13 years. Welcome, Ann Timberlake. You've been called one of South Carolina's leading conservation advocates. What has been your driving force to do this work so many years? I'll have to add to that, I've also been called the conservation pit bull at one time, <laughs> which I didn't take offense at. But, you know, I had a really remarkable experience when I came back to South Carolina from college. I grew up in Columbia. I went to Newcomb College of Tulane University in New Orleans. I had sort of an awakening. I graduated in 1968, a year of turbulence, but I came back and I sort of regret in some ways that I wasn't, I didn't take up civil rights or the, or the war. I came back wanting to save trees. <laughs> I was an environmental radical. Uh, I had sort of discovered some of the writings of the Sierra Club. I joined the Sierra Club. It was just forming in uh, the Carolinas at that time. And so I had the good fortune to work with a team of pretty much young people like myself to save the Congaree Swamp from being uh, cut. And to, it led to the establishment of our Congaree National Park. That was a really early and exciting experience that I think sort of shaped a lot of what I later felt about the ability to make a difference. If that hadn't happened, you and your colleagues getting involved, yeah. where would the Congaree Swamp be now, do you think? Most likely in some sort of timber management. It's, it's a floodplain. So I don't know that it would have been developed, but we would not have the extraordinary remnants of virgin forest. I mean, the bulk of the acreage had never been cut. And so you have a natural ecosystem. I mean, it's an international biosphere. It's unique in the world. And why is that important? Well, it was important to me because I think we need those wild places. It even relates to history, and I majored in history. And I can remember, you know, trying to understand how did early explorers ride through the forest? I mean, you know, your typical drive along the highway, it's hard to see with the brambles and the understory. But yet when you walked in Congaree, you could see how that was possible. It was a towering overstory of trees. And it was, you know, where nature ruled. I mean, the, the natural flooding deposited the rich soils and that fed the you know, amazing diversity of trees and wildlife. So it's important then for people, especially young people, to recognize these roots of this community. Yes, and it's important to realize that it wasn't just given to us. People did have to speak out and change the minds of elected officials. You know, at that time, it was very well, it was pretty well accepted that for the public good, for a lake like Lake Murray or an interstate highway, you could condemn private property. But this forest was privately owned and the owners did not want to sell it to be a park. So we had to advocate for condemnation. In the end, there was a compromise worked out and the owners realized that they would, they would be happy to let the land be condemned and invest in a more appropriate uh, timberland. 
And what is the designation now? What do you it call it? It is a national park on, on a par with the Great Smokies or, or Yellowstone. I mean, it's not as large. But we had a report that was done actually, and to give credit to Harry Hampton, who was an early advocate for establishing a park, he had, in the early 60s, had gotten the National Park Service to do a study that concluded that it merited being included in the park system. There was nothing like it. I mean, it wasn't that uncommon in the Southeast. It's a Red River bottomland swamp. Every major river had such an ecosystem, but all of you know, those lands had been cleared and drained and or dammed up, and so it was. There were very other, no other places like it. You were also instrumental in the Tatuga River. Yes, yes. So tell us about that. Well, that went back to that connection with the Sierra Club. It, actually, through those early outings, I met and married my first husband, Ted Snyder. And Ted was the leader of the Sierra Club, and so it moved up to the upstate, and we began to explore and canoe down the Chattooga. And this coincided about when the National Wild and Scenic Rivers Act was a federal legislation to establish uh, wild and scenic rivers. The Chattooga was proposed by the Forest Service as a potential, uh, you know, to be included in that designation. So there were hearings and we testified, shared, uh, asked people to write letters. I mean, it was very early advocacy, you know, grassroots basic advocacy without email and, you know, social media. But we, uh, we wrote letters and we signed petitions and we showed up. Yeah. And all of these efforts were bipartisan at the time, which is yes, interesting. absolutely bipartisan. And do you still find that that is the approach that works best? Or have Amazingly we become so... Amazingly so, in South Carolina, protecting the environment, or as we all really like to say, conservation, which, you know, is a, related to being conservative, it, it is bipartisan. It is not a Republican or a Democratic issue. And in this state, um, it's it just we had a major event, a lot of news stories about a gathering on the coast to celebrate with Joe Cunningham getting the bill to ban offshore drilling in the Atlantic passed through the House. And that has not gone through the Senate, but it was an event to celebrate that. Governor McMaster spoke. Uh, Senator Chip Campson was there to speak, Republican from Charleston. Peter McCoy, a representative from Charleston, Leon Stavanakis, a Democrat from Charleston. I mean, it was mayors from uh, up and down the coast. As uh, I think uh, Representative Cunningham said, this is a South Carolina team. And, and so I think it's that approach. And yet South Carolina is a state that is growing rapidly. Uh, there are pressures to build more houses, more manufacturing sites. How do you counteract that? It's been called a pro-business state. We don't think that being pro-business and pro-conservation need to be at odds. You know, we need to plan. Conservationists have always wanted to see prosperity for our state and jobs. And uh, it turns out, actually, that we advocate for clean energy. It turns out that a lot of the major companies that we'd like to lure to come to South Carolina, they want to be able to have clean energy. They want to, uh, a lot of the international companies are committed to green energy. So it can be a win-win. You started the Green Tie Awards. Tell us about that. Well, Conservation Voters got started in 2003, and in the beginning, it was just myself, and then I hired one person, and then, you know, two, three people. 
and it was in 2009. Uh, so we've been going about six years, and we had become more prominent at the state legislature. We advocated, and the, what set us apart from our partner organizations was that conservation voters also had a political arm, and we endorsed candidates, and we helped elect candidates. And, Republicans and Democrats, based on their commitment and their record. And we kind of looked around and thought, you know, we would like to recognize legislative leadership. And we sort of copied what a couple of other states that also had uh, voter leagues were doing, but we named ours the Green Tie Luncheon. We made it, put it in the middle of the day. Not only did we recognize legislative leadership, but we also recognized conservationists and advocates. In fact, the very first honoree that we honored for conservation advocacy was Harriet Kosling. And I do consider her, it was my, really my honor that we could do that, because I've always considered her a mentor. The conservation voters started with a budget of $60,000, and then when you left the organization, it was about $600,000. Yes. How did you build that budget and, and that organization? Well, we did good work. <laughs> we, we weren't afraid to ask for you know, contributions to support that work. And, and that was total. That was to, we had an education fund, which is a 501c3 organization, so we could secure grant funding. So we grew grants, we grew individual contributions to the, the more political advocacy organization. And so that was all combined. And um, my successor, I'm very proud to say, has I think more than doubled that now, but <laughs> I feel like the mother hen. I'm very proud of the work they continue to do. You grew up in South Carolina. Was there a memory in those days, in your formative years, that could have been considered as a turning point for you that may have moved you into this area of? Well, I had the good fortune to spend a lot of my youth outdoors. My family had a farm up at Lake Murray, and this is many years ago, and we were surrounded really by a lot of open space, and my grandfather had horses, and we fished, and we swam, and so I had a lot of outdoor experiences, but you know, my family didn't really go around and visit the national parks or camp. That was something I sort of embraced as I came out of college and just wanted to, I guess, take a step further. Was there a teacher who gave you inspiration during this time? You know, I think it was that early experience coming out of college with that, that early Sierra Club experience that in many ways was sort of a empowering experience. And I, th I think that the experience of having worked in public advocacy also led me to interact more with, you know, elected leaders. Um, I was an early supporter of Dick Riley, of Governor Riley, and I was a county coordinator up in Oconee County for Dick Riley. And so, so I volunteered in campaigns. I, I consider all of those figures, you know, to be mentors. And as I mentioned, Harriet Kosling, who I got to know a little bit later, uh, was a was a mentor in the sense that. She has written about, uh, she was in the House of Representatives. She wasn't elected, I don't th think, so she was in her mid-50s, and she was on county council first. And she wrote this wonderful book, um, Against the Tide, and she talks about having the experience of being elected and knowing that she could make a difference, how that gave her more confidence and courage. 
And I actually never had the experience of being elected and, and never ran, but I think that experience of being a successful advocate and seeing that elected officials will listen and that you can work for the public interest, I, I think was empowering for me. Why is it that more women are not in elected positions or in positions like yours in advocacy? You know, I heard a speaker, in fact, it was Harriet who took me to hear a speaker way back in the early days of conservation voters. And this was a woman who had family who lived in South Carolina. She was from New England and she was uh, held office uh, like a speaker of the house. And she spoke and it really resonated with me. She was talking about the need to recruit more women to run for office. And she basically said, women want a team. They want a team to, to work with, I mean, to build on. It's not a team to do their job. I mean, it's, a, it's just, I think, by nature. She said, we need to build teamwork and team support. And I think we're seeing that with some of the programs now that help give women the confidence to run. And that leads to the question, leadership. How do you define leadership? I've been probably criticized for being, you know, kind of a strong leader at times, but I think of it as teamwork. Honestly, I, I want everyone to feel a stake. I've got to find the common ground so that people will f the, who are on my team are um, inspired. What do you think makes you a good leader? I think some of it may be coming to it a little bit later in life. I don't know that I was as strong a leader in those early environmental days as when I came back to it. And you know, when I think of Harriet, for example, who didn't, didn't begin serving until her mid-50s. I was in my mid-50s when I took on conservation voters. And I think for a lot of folks out there who are thinking, well, I haven't made my mark. I'm 35, I'm 45, I haven't made my mark. You know, um, you've got time. You know, I think you just have to stay tuned in, you know, hone your skills. I think some of the positions I had as, as a volunteer, serving on a nonprofit board, uh, raising money for a ballet company, uh, working um, for, you know, an elementary education foundation. Those were all important experiences. That led to this? Yes. What was your biggest workplace challenge? I'm not by nature someone who really loves to budget. I'm fiscally responsible, but the being able to translate that to project and then account with a budget, uh, I mean, we were always in the black. I never had to, <laughs> never had to beg. But there were, you know, that that's that's hard work. Yeah. Another issue women, many women face is work-life balance. How did you conquer that issue? Well, I was a little bit older, you know, when I was really about the time that I got really into going back with the conservation voters. Uh, our daughter was about to, she was getting close to going to college. So the timing on that was actually good. <laughs> I sort of had a void in my life that I could, could fill. And what would your advice be for a young woman today? Well, I think it's important to find your voice and to speak out where you're comfortable. I do think I'm known as an advocate, but I think it's important for us just to share in conversation with people the things we care about. And I, I worry that conversations about politics are almost becoming taboo. It's almost like not polite to bring up those issues. And I think we need to have conversations, you know, respectful conversations. 
I don't know how we find common ground if we don't have those. And then um, voting, uh, participating. There are many ways to participate in politics short of running, although I'd love to see more, you know, more young people run. But working in campaigns uh, and voting, I always like to um, ask people to not just vote in November, to vote in the primary of their choice. If we, if we don't vote in primaries, we're not going to nominate candidates who run more to the center. And a lot of people, a lot of women, are thinking about voting because 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the right to vote. So in your words, why is that right to vote so important? Well, I think it means I can make a difference. I mean, I think what we're fighting is the idea that my vote does not count. And I think with the way some of our districts are drawn, you don't feel that it counts. But if you have one conversation with an elected official, a real conversation, I'm not talking about signing on to just a, an email. Hey, it's fine to email, but I'm talking about one-on-one. -on -one. Just start at the local level. If, that's, if you don't know your house member or your state senator, You've got a city councilman or a county councilman. Start at the local level. Have a conversation about what you care about. That's how you realize that it, you, you can make a difference when you vote. This series is called Women Vision SC. Do you have an overriding vision that you fall back on? Well, I guess for me and where I really kind of get my energy my, to recharge is going back into the natural world, uh, too. And I'm so glad, you know, South Carolina has done a remarkable job protecting a lot of very special places. Um, that is one of the uh, points that Senator Campson always makes when we're talking about offshore drilling. He is, you know, he's like, as a state, we have already chosen to protect so much of our coast. And, and we've done that in other, other parts of the state, the Congaree, the, the Chattooga, our state parks. Um, and I think I'd like to, to know that those hopefully are, you know, live on and that people will be able to reconnect and will leave this place better than we found it. Thank you very much, Ann Timberlake. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is Director of Special Projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us.